are uh, looking at the book of Luke together. Uh, Luke chapter 16. And as we look at Luke 16, I'm going to read just one passage, but we're going to go verses 1 through 15 together. Luke 16, verses 1 through 15 together. If you don't have a Bible or you don't have one on your app, um, then there should be a Bible at a row near you. So just ask a neighbor for it. Um, A lot of our Bibles made it to this side of the room, so if you need one, just really yell it to these people. Say, hey, could I have one? Throw it across. I'm fine with it. You know, practice your catching skills. Don't hit your neighbor. Okay, so we're going to read verse uh, 13. That's the verse I'm going to read, but as I said, we will go through the entire uh, passage, verses 1 through 15 together of Luke chapter 16. (coughs) So I'll read it, pray, and then we'll dive in. The Word of God says this, Luke 16, verse 13. No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, Or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Let's pray. Father, I ask that in these moments. You would humble our hearts to receive what is written in your word. I pray that your word would be a light a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path, and that we would hide your precious word in our heart rather than rejecting it in order that we might not sin against you and that we might enjoy you to the fullest. There's a lot at stake in how we listen in these moments. And so by the power of your Holy Spirit, would you just convince us That there is absolutely nothing that rivals you or is more worthy than you or compares with you. And in that we pray that you overwhelm us with your beauty and love. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Have you ever been convinced that something was going to go a certain way? And you were surprised that it went better than you thought. You ever been invited to this party that you just dreaded with all your might and then all of a sudden you show up and it wasn't as bad or you were expecting to watch a football game and while you were watching it you genuinely expected your team to get trounced only to be uniquely surprised? Well, that did not happen to me yesterday. I expected my team to get trounced and they did, but that's a different story. Have you, have you ever looked into something and really had zero expectations, but come away really helped and really surprised? Well, that was me this week as I dove in to this passage. I'll be honest. I prepared my heart and my mind for Luke 15. And as we dove into what is one of the more famous passages in all of the Bible, the story of the prodigal son... I was there, focused in there, and I did not read further into Luke 16 until Monday. 
So I had read through Luke earlier before we started the series, but heck, that was what, 17 years ago, it feels like. So I was like, you know, I've slept since then. So I was, I dive in and I start reading this passage and I was just like, what in the world does this mean? And what am I supposed to expect from this? Let's read it. Verse 1. Jesus also said to the disciples, there was a rich man who had a manager. And charges were brought to him that this man was wasting his possessions. And he called him and said to him, what is this that I hear about you? Turn in the account of your management, for you can no longer be manager. And the manager said to himself, what should I do since my master is taking the management away from me? I'm not strong enough to dig and I'm ashamed to beg. I have decided what to do so that when I am removed from management, seems to be that there was, he gave him a little bit of time before he totally kicked him out, that people may receive me into their homes. So summoning his master's debtors one by one, he said to the first, how much do you owe my master? And he said, a hundred measures of oil. And he said to him, take your bill, sit down quickly and write 50. Then he said to another, how much do you owe? And he said, hundreds of measures of wheat. And he said to him, take your bill, write 80. And the master commended the dishonest manager for his shrewdness. For the sons of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. And I tell you, if this verse doesn't make you confused, I don't know what will. I tell you, make friends for yourself by means of unrighteous wealth, so that when it fails, they may receive you into eternal dwellings, period. And I read that and I was like, where did the prodigal son go? I'm like, come on, bring him home. I need, I need that story again. So I'm reading this and I'm like, okay, where are we headed with this thing? So I'm just, I'm just helping you jump into the journey, okay? And here's some things that I think stand out for us. I was uniquely surprised and remarkably helped the more I began to dive into this passage of God's Word. And I'm just praying and trusting Him that although you might not have known what to expect when you came in, God has a precious gift to give you today. It is more of Himself and the opportunity to live for His name. So, I think there are three things that this passage lays out for us that we need to look at. It's the Father and finances, the future and finances, and then faithfulness and finances. The Father and finances, the future and finances, and faithfulness and finances. Like I said, I didn't expect to dive into this this week, coming off of the parable of the prodigal son. But I think where we start is where Jesus wants us to start. It is with the question, why does this follow the passage on the prodigal son? And I believe it's so that we understand and know the father's heart. And so I would say this. The summary of this father in finances point could be summarized by this. Because you are loved, now go love. Because you are loved, now go love. 
If you're not convinced of God's love for you, then any seeking to love someone else will be void of an example, void of an experience of radical, generous love, and void of the energy that it takes to love persistently to the end. And so what we need this morning is to understand that this passage is not in a vacuum. It's in a context. And there's a Savior who stands commanding us, but there is never one of His commands that isn't for our joy. And there is never one of the experiences that you have experienced this week or ever that if you are a child of God that isn't always accompanied by His love. I'll say it again. Every experience of yours is always accompanied by His love. That is the point of the parable of the prodigal son. Is that even when one son was rebellious and the other son was religious, there was the heart of the lavish love of the father that was there saying, come to me. Come to me, arms wide open. I want you just as you are. You're in my family. There's nothing that can ever get rid of that. And so he calls you to himself to let you know that he loves you. That's the parable of the prodigal son. What does it mean to be loved? It means that you are pursued. It means that you are fought for. It means that you are adopted into a family where he has created a forever home. You will never be orphaned. You will never be abandoned. It means that he is always praying for you. It means that he is always extending mercy to you. It means that he is always caring for you as the best of the best fathers. It means that he grants you stillness. And he wants to be with you in it. It means that sometimes he stops you. When you are running headlong into sin. It means that he comforts you when you are low. He is a friend when you are lonely. He is an ear when you need someone to listen to you. He speaks through his word and by his spirit. And right now he is preparing for you a forever place. He wants you to know, arms open wide, I love you. That's why we sang what we sang. That's why we... We're being washed regularly by those words, how he loves us, because if you don't understand the Father's love for you, undeserving though you are, if you've come in and you say, of course he loves me, I deserve it, then you don't know his love. Because the only way you understand and appreciate his love is when you understand you don't deserve one ounce of it. You're a desperate sinner in full Desert, you deserve fully his justice. And instead, he says, I will not treat you as my sins deserve. Instead, I treated my son that way that you might have love and have it to the full. And so he says, why are these two passages slammed together? It's because the father's love, because he loves you, now go love. Because he loves you, go love. I went to uh, San Diego a couple weeks ago for the Pastors and Wives Retreat with the Treasure in Christ Together Church Planting Network. While we were there, one of our, my pastor friends, uh, Tim Kane in San Diego, uh, he shared about a five-minute uh, little uh, kind of devotion to kind of get us going. And he was sharing this, and 
I just found it so helpful. I think it applies to us right now. And he said, what happens when someone calls you and says, I want to meet with you? I get this a lot as a pastor. I don't know exactly what I'm getting into. Many people will just say, hey, I need to meet with you. And it could be the massive buffet of all kinds of things. It could be, I can't stand you. It could be, I criticize you. It could be, I love you. It could be, I'm really hurting. It could be all kinds of stuff. I have no idea. And the question he was asking is the question that we ask, how do you prepare for something that you don't know what is coming? How do you prepare for that meeting when you know that person is coming there and you are going to sit there? What do you do? And he said, the Lord just struck him with this phrase, the agenda is love. What is the agenda when you don't know what is coming? And he said, the agenda is love. And if love is the agenda, it can never fail. If the agenda is, oh, if they're going to criticize me, then I better have a defense. That could fail. Because you might not defend well enough. Your words might not be articulate enough. You might not be able to convince someone. But if the agenda is love, it won't fail. If it's encouragement, and you don't know how to receive that, and you're trying to figure out how to process all of that, you might fail in how you receive that. But if your agenda is to love that person across from you, the agenda will never fail. Tim told a story that he went to adopt. I've shared this story with you before, so it's not in a vacuum. Some of you visitors don't know it. Tim went to try to adopt a child in Uganda. And what was supposed to be six weeks turned into six months. And after six months with this little girl named Maggie, the adoption did not go through. And he had to leave Maggie there. And he and his family had to come home without this child. He told a heartbreaking story. He said, when we showed up in Uganda, there was a picture of our two current adopted children and my wife and I. And then every picture for seven months had little Maggie in the picture. But then when we left, there was another picture with just the two kids that we have already have and my wife and I. And when people looked at that, what they said was that was a failed adoption. It's a failed adoption. It didn't work. And then the Lord comforted his heart and said, but if the agenda was love, then we did not fail. It wasn't a failure. We poured our lives out for seven months to love this little girl and to try to fight with all of our heart that she had a forever home. If the agenda is love, you cannot fail. But friends, we fail, don't we? We fail to love sometimes. We get short and frustrated. Let alone, wouldn't it be nice if someone else had the agenda to love, right? You're thinking like, yeah, I might have it, but what about them? Can't they have it towards me? The comfort you have in that moment is not your resolve to love better. The comfort you have in that moment is that there is somebody else who has the agenda of love. It is Jesus. 
And he was faithful with the little things. He was faithful in the big things. He lived a perfect life. And he had, no matter what was coming his way, the agenda of love that says, I am going all the way to the cross because love is my agenda. And I'm going all the way to the cross to die for the very people who will mock me and rebel against me and refuse me and choose things over me. But if my agenda is love, I will not fail. And he went all the way to the cross for every one of us rebellious hearts in this room. And he says, I love you to the end. And he died on the cross. And he says three days later, raised from the dead that I will send you my Holy Spirit. So that then when you are called upon to love, you're not left alone. And when you fail in your choosing to love, there's a God there who forgives. And who washes you clean. And is a master of fixing mess ups. And is brilliant at making things new. The Father. The Father. The Father. The Father. Because He loves you. The agenda is love. Now why is the point the Father and finances, it's because that's where the passage goes. This is one thing that's beautiful about preaching the Bible is that the preacher doesn't get the opportunity to control where things go. The beauty of it is that means God gets to take us where God wants to take us. And today, it has to do with being convinced of the Father's love and how it affects the resources we have. So, the second point then is the future and finances. The future and finances. And this could be summarized by, because you are loved, live generously. Because you are loved, live generously. Now, in that massively confusing passage that I just read to you, let's walk through it and make sure that we understand it, okay? Jesus now coming out of a father who says, I celebrate over sinners who repent. Turn to me. Don't rebel. Turn to me and I receive you. He says to his disciples, now I got to teach you a lesson. I got I to share with you something. And here's what he says. A rich man who had a manager. Okay, some of you are owners of companies. You can begin to see that there is someone who was delegated to be a manager over these resources and they were being dishonest and there is a place for when someone is being dishonest or not doing their job well that it is a place to remove them that's exactly what happens here with this manager or with this rich man who has a manager working for him the charges were brought to this rich man that this man was wasting his possessions now what's interesting is when The rich man invites the manager in, verse 2. He called him and said to him, What is this I hear about you? Turn in the account of your management, for you can no longer be manager. What don't you hear? You don't hear the guy defending himself because he's guilty. There's no defense for him. He knows he's been a mismanager. He knows he's been dishonest. He knows he's been working for his own means and purposes. So... He now feels panicked. Some of you have lost jobs before for just purposes or unjust purposes. Some of you have lost jobs and you're like, you ask these questions of verse 3. What shall I do 
since I'm losing my job. I'm not strong enough. You, you begin to weigh your options, right? Well, I don't know that I'm strong enough to dig, and I'm really embarrassed to beg, so what are my options? And so this is what happens when we get in desperation mode. We begin to try to think creatively, right? Like, I've got to exhaust all my options. I've got to start having a lot of conversations. Desperation is actually a good thing to put you on your knees and to help you work hard towards a goal. So here we are. He says, verse 4, I've decided what to do. After all the deliberation, I've decided what to do. Here's what I'm going to do. And he goes out to these debtors and he begins to back their debt off a little bit. Why is he doing that? It says, so that, verse 4, people may receive me into their houses. This is a ploy that, okay, what would happen if I came to you and I said, hey, I know you owe like 200 bucks. I'm going to knock it down. Why don't you just give me 75? You'd be like, pretty good guy. Okay, I like him. And if he does that to multiple people, then all of a sudden he's got the pretty good guy. I think I like him. Then all of a sudden he's got that with multiple people. He's creating a network. He's creating a network through what's called shrewdness. Now, this is labeled ultimately as a sense of dishonesty in some way, shape, or form. This manager is known for dishonesty, but here he is commended for his shrewdness, his wisdom, his hard working to try to figure out how he's going to make it. Do you see the commendation? Verse 8, the master commended the dishonest manager. I think the dishonesty is referring back to the fact that he wasn't managing things well at the beginning. For his shrewdness. Now, we don't know what the commendation is. Is it the fact that he wasn't going to get any of the money? So the fact that he got three quarters of the money or, you know, two thirds of the resources was a win. And that's why we don't know. But at the end of the day, he commends him for his shrewdness. And now Jesus tells a point. For the sons of this world are more shrewd in dealing with this generation than the sons of light. Now we have a comparison. These people who don't know Jesus are working hard and are trying to figure out how they can win people over for their own purposes. But the sons of light are not that way. They're not as hardworking or aggressive or creative at trying to make friends for a different purpose. That's why he says in verse 9, I tell you, go make friends. Go win people over, but not in a dishonest way. Win people over through something that is so radical, they're blown away and they are brought, yes, to you, but most importantly, brought to Jesus. Do you get this? He's comparing the hard worker of the one in the world who is trying to get ahead with, why aren't you trying to make friends? By winning them over with generosity. Winning them over with your lavish love. That's why he says, I tell you, make friends for yourself by means of unrighteous wealth. That's just the sense that money, all money comes from these kind of, you know, not godly resources that just, it's just the, the wealth is not godly in and of itself. 
so that when it fails, when the money fails, they may receive you into eternal dwellings. There is this sense that if you're going out and you're winning them over, they might be with you in eternity forever. You follow the contrast? The contrast is this, and he is commending us all. Work hard. Work creatively. Yes, to make friends and relationships, but not to win them over for your own purposes, but to win them over for the kingdom of God. And how will you do that? It will be living a sacrificial, generous life of love with your resources that stands in contrast to the self-serving manager who did everything that he did for his own gain. This is, amen, it is funny. This is what he is commending for us, that we use our resources and our generosity to make friends for Christ. This is not, and this, honestly, this is really helpful. This stands in contrast to what might be labeled as the social gospel. That is just doing kind things to be kind. No, the aim here that Jesus is pushing for is not just be kind to be kind. It is be kind as a means of them seeing Jesus. Everything that we do must be kindness towards Christ. And if Christ isn't the goal, then it's not kindness. Jesus must be proclaimed and seen. Both and. And so there's this, there's this sense that he is pressing us to be generous. Generous for Christ's sake. Generous for Christ's sake. And we know that he is speaking about generosity because the punchline is the verse that I read for you earlier in verse 13. No servant can serve two masters. You either hate the one or love the other, be devoted to the one and despise the other. You can't serve both God and money. The question is, how will you use your money to win over friends for the kingdom? Answer, Live in such a way it can only be explained by Jesus. A friend of mine shared that phrase with me and I found it so helpful. What it would look like for us to live our lives in such a way that it can only be explained by Jesus. He wants us to know that because we are loved, we can live generously. And part of what he is commending is that because you are loved, you must plan for generosity. Any financial planners out in the room right now are like, yeah, my position matters. Yes, it does. And all of you people in this entire room, this is one reason why budgeting matters. He is commending the manager for thinking about his future and working hard in order to have a plan for the future. But not just have a plan for the future so that you are warmed and well fed. Have a plan for the future so that you are living in such a way your life can only be explained by Jesus. Have a plan for your generosity. And this is completely different. Even many of us who have a budget, 
We are planning for our future, but many times generosity, the giving of our resources, is secondary. It's the tag on rather than the first. And so he is commending here that because you are loved, in order to live generously, you've got to plan for generosity. Why is that? Because if there's anything that can grab the heart, it's our resources. That's why he warns in 1 Timothy chapter 6, it's the love of money that's the root of all evils. It can kill you when you love money more than God. That's why he says you can't serve two masters. Who is your greatest affection? Jesus or both your money and what it can buy. And there are dangers. There are dangers with our resources. We become obsessed with our finances. We love what our money can buy for us. It begins as the more we think on it, it can turn our wants into needs. And we believe we need all kinds of things that we did not need before. And many times we justify a lack of generosity when many times it's just a lack of intentionality. That leads us not having to give. Generosity is shocking. Have you ever been accused of being unwise with your finances because you were so lavishly generous? Should you really have done that? Should you really have given that? Should you really have let them stay in your home? Should you really have lent the car? Should you really choose where you're going to put your house built upon loving a neighbor rather than just what's convenient, what feels good, and what you like? Should you really think about your resources and how you leverage them for the kingdom? Has any of that, have you ever been indicted for your stupidity, your lack of wisdom? If there has never been a time in your life that someone hasn't even remotely questioned what you're doing, then you might be in danger of being too safe or too stingy or too self-consumed with what you have. Because what this passage is speaking to is a people who are winning people over by generosity, by sacrificing what they have for the good of another And what you will notice is although the amounts of sacrifice are different, he does not address who this is to. He is not saying only to those who make this and above. He's not saying it's only to those who find themselves in this tax bracket. He's saying disciples, followers of me, this applies to everyone. And it'll look different for everyone. But what can't look different is that his people are characterized by generosity. That cannot be different. Because what is the case? What's the case is out there in the world, there are thousands of people, millions of people living for what they have. And what they don't understand is that the money will fail them one day. And what will they have to lean on on that day? 
That's the argument of the text. The argument of the text is make friends by your radical generosity so that when the money fails, they're asking questions about, now why were you able to be so let goy of your materials when I was so hoarding of my materials? What allowed you to do that? It is the speaking of Jesus. Do you see that in verse 7? So that when the money fails, they may receive you into eternal dwellings. They'll be with you forever in heaven because your kindness was accompanied with verbal proclamations of Jesus and their lives have been changed. It is a generosity of word and deed. Jim Elliott says this, a famous quote, but it so helps in moments like this. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. You're not foolish. Randy Alcorn says, God doesn't increase your income to increase your standard of living, but your standard of giving. Is every pay raise reprocessed? Is every annual re-upping reprocessed with What does this mean for generosity? Is the tax return process for what does this mean for generosity? It doesn't mean you can't fix up your home and you can't do some certain things that you wanted to do for a long time. But if you're never processing generosity, then the money has you. You're enslaved. Jesus doesn't want you there. He wants you free. Because where you're treasure is there your heart will be and Jesus says I love your heart too much to let these resources take you and so what does it look like friends what does it look like it means we must be hard working creative planning intentionally working towards what does it mean for us in our budget my budget to be generous And their priorities, their priorities in the scriptures, priorities of serving and supporting the local ministry, your church, and caring for the poor, and extending the gospel to the nations. There are priorities. And many of you are being robbed of the joy of generosity, and your hearts are bound up, and you are introducing and opening the door to anxiety. Because you have not planned and prioritized generosity. Both to your local body, but also creatively thinking, what does it look like? What does it look like at Thanksgiving? What does it look like at Christmas? What does it look like what we do in our home for birthdays? Many times, and Travis talked to me about this, they do this in China some, is that for your birthday you give gifts. Wouldn't that be great? Yeah, I'm tired of receiving right now. I've heard it's more blessed to give than receive, so I just want to give to you. I mean, start thinking some crazy, radical, wonderful things and watch your heart be set free. What does it look like for us to plan and to prioritize? The Bible promises this, Proverbs 3, 9 and 10. Honor the Lord with your wealth and with the first fruits of all your produce. Then your barns will be filled with plenty. You're like, well, I don't farm. 
I was like, okay, okay, so why did he put it in the scriptures? It's because there is a correlation. He says in Galatians 6, those who sow sparingly what? Reap sparingly. There is this supernatural, I cannot explain it, but I've experienced it and I trust him that says, although it might not always match up, it is so sparingly, reap sparingly, give generously, receive generously. When you honor the Lord with your wealth, then your barns will be filled with plenty. And I don't know what plenty is for you, and I'm not preaching a health, wealth, prosperity gospel, but there is a correlation between your generosity and your, what you receive. You just can't get away from it in the scriptures. But if you do it for what you will receive as the end in itself, you've missed the whole point. You've made money your God. And you cannot serve two masters, God and money. The goal is, Father, set my heart free. Set me free. And the only way you get there is just to be really honest that I'm bound up. I'm bound up. But this is the good news of the gospel is that for bound up people, Jesus died for you. He didn't die for people who think they've got it all together. He died for bound up people. And so, he now says, let's consider not only the future in finances, but finally, faithfulness in finances. Because here's the principle. One who is faithful in a very little is also faithful in much. See verse 10 there? And one who is dishonest in very little is also dishonest in much. If then you have not been faithful in the unrighteous wealth, that is with the money that you've been given, who will entrust to you true riches? Depth of satisfaction, peace, joy, spiritual blessings. How can you expect the blessed life when you don't use the resources that God has given you in a generous way? It doesn't work that way. It's a math problem. Two plus two always equals four. And if you hoard your stuff and you aren't generous, it will always equal discontentment and anxiety. But if with unrighteous wealth, that is, the money of the world, if with the resources you've been given, you strategically think and plan and pray and act upon being generous, then you will experience the true riches of blessedness and peace and satisfaction and contentment and joy and sacrificial love and a heart set free. That's what he's saying. Do you see he is appealing to your desire to find peace and joy? And he just has to tell them, like a father tells this son who has run away and squandered away everything. Remember the story? Just last week. The son runs away, squanders everything he has, and he comes back into the arms of the father. This is almost like the story that's happening after they've eaten the fatted calf and celebrated. He's now like, son, we got to have a financial talk. You just blew everything. And it didn't deliver, did it? No, it didn't, dad. I came back here thinking I wouldn't even be able to be a son. I'd have to be a servant. It was miserable. I was eating what the pigs had. And he says, well, that's part of the lesson. If you can't be entrusted with 
this little bit of money that you had in your hand, then you won't experience the true riches that I have for, for you. And so it's a lesson. He just, as a loving father, not as an angry man, he's just like, you know, you lived it out. And I hate that. It breaks my heart. But I receive you in and I love you. And, but you got to know that the joy of your heart is connected to your generosity. You just got to know it. And so the passage says, verse 12, And if you have not been faithful in that which is somebody else's, who will give you that which is your own? No servant can serve two masters. He will either hate the one and love the other. He will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. If you lie on small things, how in the world will you be entrusted with big things? If you cannot try to, if you don't manage well or seek to be faithful in the small amount that you might have, how in the world will you be able to be trusted with more? It's the very same argument he has for pastors. He says, if you can't manage your own home, this small family, how in the world will you be able to manage a bigger family? There's correlations like this all over the place. And I tell you, this helped me so much this week. As I was evaluating, I really don't want to respond to this email right now. It's going to take a while. I really don't want to serve my kids right now. It's going to take a lot of energy and I'm exhausted. What God brought to my mind was, if you're faithful in a little, I will entrust you with much. If you're faithful with a little, I'll give you true riches. And there was this sense of, okay, he's put it before me. I can do this small thing and trust him that he'll do something else. This is a financial principle, but it's a principle that applies to all of life. Be faithful in the small. And dear friends, some of you are plagued with the presence of jealousy because others have and you do not. And you need to hear this. If the presence of jealousy shows up in your heart, it actually is revealing that you are not ready to have the very thing you're jealous over. could be a car, it could be a marriage, it could be children, it could be a bigger house, it could be a career trajectory. And if you find in your heart that jealousy pervades, then what it is showing is you haven't learned to handle the little things that are right before you and to be content with what God has for you. And then he can entrust you with truer riches and broader things. But if the presence of jealousy is there, then maybe you're not ready to have the very thing you're jealous over. Oh, dear friends. He now addresses the Pharisees in verse 14. And he says, the Pharisees who were lovers of money heard all these things and they ridiculed Jesus. See that in verse 14? And he said to them, You are those who justify yourselves before men, but God knows your heart. For what is exalted among men is an abomination in the sight of God. Here's the gospel. I honestly believe, because I sat and stared at this text long enough, I honestly believe 
that God has a lesson for every one of us in this room. A lesson for every one of us in this room. And that every single person needs to relook at what God has given them. If nothing changes about your finances after this time in the Word, then I would suspect you might not be being faithful. If you don't even look at them anymore, if you just continue as is, I can tell you from experience, my parents have helped me plan. I've got financial advisors that look at my budget. People know what I make and they know how I spend my money because I don't trust myself by myself. And I'm not just talking about my wife knows. Somebody outside my home knows because I don't trust that I can discern where everything can go. So at minimum, it's a relook. It could be one more dollar. It could be one more percent. It could be one more discussion in your household or with someone else. It could be one more set of eyes that look in at your budget. It could be one more goal. It could be one more person to serve. It could be one more sacrifice, one more cause, one more gift. But the point here is we must apply these words and not act like the Pharisees who ended up, when they heard it, they ridiculed him and said, that's for somebody else. They tried to justify themselves. No, I'm fine, thank you. I'm okay, thank you. You don't understand my budget, thank you. And that's why I'm so thankful that I don't have to understand it and neither did Jesus. He commanded us what is right for healthy living. And so what we are hoping for And we'll talk about it more in our family meeting tonight. But what we are hoping for is that if you would like help, if you would like some encouragement, if you'd like an extra set of eyes, if you would like to just know what some options of generosity are, we will help connect you to a financial counselor, someone who will help you frame a budget, someone who would be happy to sit down and talk with you. We're also going to do this in other areas of life. Because what it means to be a disciple, a follower of Jesus, is that everything is his and everything is on the table for him to look at and to own. So if that is you, if that is you, please come talk to us. Let us know how we can serve you. But at the end of the day, because you are loved, now go in love. Because our great God says, He who is rich became poor so that in his poverty we might become rich. When God talks about the incarnation that way, he's saying, I get what it's like to be poor and I get what it's like to be rich. I get what it's like for something to have a grip of my heart. And I'm telling you, I died for your freedom. And I died and promised you that I will take care of you. Now surrender it all to me. This is the call of today. The call of today is, Jesus, you are more precious than anything I could hold in my hands. And so use me. Use me to make friends for the kingdom. And to live a life that can only be explained by Jesus has changed me.